Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. The people who are giving you all of this advice, are they successful real estate investors with businesses in the real estate industry that you would like to have or that you admire? If the answer is no, or eh, then, then it doesn't matter what they think. They, they, who cares? You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Our Real Estate today. I'm excited to have you here. I got another great Q&A for you. Uh, lots of great questions. We talked about determining market rent. If you have rentals, when do you raise the rent? When's the appropriate time? Uh, what it takes to be a real real estate investor. It's, I'm putting real in quotes here. Uh, there was a question about someone who I think has a little bit of imposter syndrome, and we talked through that a little bit. Pretty common. I had it myself at one point. Uh, hiring out the maintenance for a multifamily. Uh, there was a question about somebody managing a large multifamily uh, uh, unit themselves and just kind of going crazy trying to keep track and keep up with all of the maintenance issues and how that could be farmed out or hired out, what that looks like. And also we talked about scaling your flip business. How do you scale? How do you have how do you get the money, the down payment? How do you put your finances together in a way that allows you to scale? effectively and many, many more questions. So that's just an overview highlights of today's show. Uh, but let's get dive into it. Let's not wait any longer. Let's get right into the show, guys. I, I have a good one this week and, and I think you're going to love it. So let's dive in right now. Okay, we're live. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, I am here with you, as you guys know, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern time and 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, I'm here to answer your questions. So uh, we've had some good participation here on the uh, on this Q and A, and I'm looking forward to having awesome participation again today. If you guys have questions, uh, let me know and pop them in the chat, and we can get to them. Otherwise, I do have questions that I've gotten over the last couple of weeks that I am going to uh, answer uh, because I didn't get to some of them. Some of you guys had questions that you sent to me. I didn't have time to get to them. Uh, because we were just kind of like really jamming with some folks that were on live. And uh, so I'm going to answer those now, but, uh, but feel free guys, ask questions, hop on. We're here, like I said, every week. Uh, I do have um, some, some group programs that I offer. Um, if you go to thebestrealestateprogram.com, you can always see what I have available for you. Uh, those are paid programs. This is free. So if you want to ask me a specific question or get my help and you don't have the time or the money right now, maybe to join a program, uh, you can hop on here and sort of hack the system a little bit and ask me questions. Uh, doesn't mean it's, you're going to get always the same level of engagement that you can inside of my programs because I can really dig in specifically uh, for a prolonged period of time and really help you jumpstart your business or get it started uh, and it, or take it to that next level, right? Take this little hobby that you've created 
and turn it into a full-fledged business uh, that's you know producing predictable revenue and taking you to a place of financial freedom. Like we can do that too, right? Uh, but during these Wednesdays, these Q and A's, this is a great time for you to get in and just ask me questions and maybe get real specific about something that you have questions on, and then I can ask you questions back and we can have that exchange. If you know, because sometimes you send me a question, I answer it but I might have a follow-up question to really dive into your question and get the best answer possible. And we can only do so much if you send it in. So uh, if you hop on here live, you're going to get the best of that, that experience from me. So that's what I suggest. However, we do have some questions. And uh, before anybody hops on and starts asking them live here in person, I'm going to get to some of these questions that I did not get to the last few weeks. So let's start with the first one. Uh, is it normal? Let's see. First question. Is it normal to raise the rent once the lease is month to month? Is there a formula for figuring that out? I don't think there's a formula necessarily. And if there is, I don't know about it. And I wouldn't even trust it because a formula doesn't take into account market conditions. It doesn't take into account your specific uh, market where you're at. It could be a really, really hot rental market. It could be kind of a cold rental market. And a formula is not really going to give you that information. So some of it has to do with knowing what rents are in your area. So I would say at least once a year, I would be running kind of the comps like you did when you first bought the rental to find out what you should be charging for rent for your properties. I would do that every year and as an exercise and find out, are you charging the right rent? Should you be charging more? Uh, can you get more for that property? But once it's month to month, I mean, you can raise it whenever you want, obviously, but um, I don't think you have to raise it. I've had rentals that I did not raise the rent when it went month to month. Um, and there's rentals that I've had where I did raise the rent. But when I didn't raise the rent, honestly, it was a, had a lot more to do with me not being on top of it or maybe being a little bit lethargic about it. It wasn't because I couldn't. And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, I, I had a conversation a few months back with uh, Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets. And he said the same thing. Sometimes when you have rentals, especially if you get to know the people that are renting it from you, you start making decisions based off of how you feel about the person and you feel bad maybe raising the rent because you kind of know their situation. When you have a, a property management company, they can go in and do those analytics and they can run those rentals like a business. And, and sometimes that's not you know, maybe what you would do if, if it was just completely up to you and you had to face the people and say, I'm going to raise your rent and you feel bad. And so that's not really how you should run a business is, is not raising your rents or not because of maybe what you know about them personally. Um, so it's not really your question, but that's just something you should take into consideration. I don't think there's a formula. I think every year you or your property management company should be looking into the current rent rates for that property and raising them accordingly if that's what what uh, the market dictates. And if the market's really you know not doing well, you can't raise them. You know, and in fact, um, they may leave if they think they can get cheaper rates somewhere else. So I just sold a bunch of my rentals, and I had lunch today with the person who bought some of them, and he raised the rent on on both of them, uh, sign fairly significantly actually. And um, the renters didn't bat an eye. One of them was actually. Uh, vacant when he bought it, but he's charging uh, like a lot more, a couple hundred dollars more than I was for that property when I had it. And it's because I wasn't watching the, the rent rates that closely and I was leaving things kind of alone, but he got in and raised the rent on some of them. And on other ones, he just asked for higher rent when he went to, to rent those vacant properties. So 
I think you just have to watch your market and know what the market is and then have the you know, have the business attitude about it that you're going to raise them. If your rents are lower than market average or, or what the market will bear, then you raise them, right? I think there's nothing wrong with that. If they leave, if the tenants leave, then they're going to end up paying more rent, you know, for wherever they go than they would have a few years ago, probably anyways. It's a high rent market right now in a lot of areas. So I think you can probably get more rent. And as you scale up, just like anything, if you have one property and you raise the rent by $100, it doesn't change your life that much. It's not that big of a deal. But if you have 30 rentals and you change all of them by 100 or a couple hundred dollars after a few years, like that becomes that starts to become a significant difference in your in your world, right? In your in your business. And so you have to look at those things and try to treat it as much as you can like a business, but um, you certainly can change it when it's month to month. And honestly, even if it's not month to month, if you sign a two-year lease with somebody after well, you have to build it into your lease, obviously what you can and can't do. Most times you say either it'll raise by a certain set amount or it can raise up to a certain percentage above what you're doing now. So you have to think ahead a little bit when you have a lease, but once it goes month to month, I don't think you automatically raise it but I think you should automatically evaluate it and see if you're charging the right rent. Okay, uh, let's see, next question. I currently own two buy and hold quads with a, within a couple of blocks of the beach of San Diego. Awesome, good for you. And I still hesitate to call myself an investor. How many properties did you have before you felt like you were a real investor? It's huh, a good question. And uh, this is, I think a lot of people struggle with this, a little bit of like self-doubt and a little bit of imposter syndrome or a little bit just like they don't feel like they've really done anything special. So they don't really consider themselves an investor. I say when you start investing in real estate, you're an investor. And in fact, when I started, I was a house flipper. And some people would say a house flipper is not an investor, right? I disagree. I think I think we all are. We do it in different ways. But um, I, you know, when I started investing, I had uh, a mentor of mine. I actually, I don't talk about this a ton, but when I started, before I actually started, I went to this this weekend boot camp of this local like real estate guru. I, I, he wasn't really a guru, but he sort of was. He was he knew about real estate and he taught people, and so he was like this this mentor, I guess, or coach. And we went to his program. It was a weekend program. And it wasn't cheap. It was actually pretty expensive. It was a couple thousand, a couple thousand, I think $2,900 actually. And me and my wife went. And the first thing that he did, and this was a bunch of people, I think everyone in that room was either brand new to real estate or had really never done much, maybe a deal. But I think most everyone was brand new. And he went around the room day one, first thing and said, what do you do for a living? What do you do? Like, what do you do? I think he said for a living. He said, what do you do? What's your, what, what's your occupation? What do you do? What do you do? And everyone was like, you know, uh, I work in the automotive industry. Um, I'm a plumber. I'm a carpenter. Like they just named all these, these professions. And he said, this is the first problem. All of you do not, none of you, in other words, do none of you identify as a real estate investor. You have to change that today, starting today. When people ask you, what do you do? You say, I'm a real estate investor. And then you can say, oh, by the way, during the day, um, I do plumbing, but I am actually a real estate investor. That's my, that's my profession. And that's how I, that's what I want to do, you know, going forward. So 
it was sort of like this mindset thing. Like he, it was sort of a trick question because he knew no one was going to say they were an investor. They hadn't even started, but he wanted to get it in their heads right away that what you kind of are, what you tell yourself you are, right? The stories that we tell ourselves are more powerful than anything that happens around us. How we, the stories that we tell ourselves and the things that we tell ourselves are true about ourselves become true a lot of times. And that's not like the secret. I'm not going there at all, but uh, it is true. What you tell yourself and the stories that you tell yourself really have a big impact. And so to this question, if you have two um, quads, I mean, you've got eight units, you're a real estate investor. Like you just are by anybody's metric, you're a real estate investor. And so the reason I tell you that story was I identified as a real estate investor from day one, before I even did my first deal, which was sort of a lie to myself, obviously. But but once I started buying and, and flipping houses, I was an investor. Like day one, I consider myself that. So you've got eight units, man. You're an investor. Like go for it. Um, consider yourself an investor and tell people you're an investor. And the more you do that, your brain is going to go, yeah, I'm an investor. And it kind of helps propel you too. It gives you that confidence because just the question alone it feels like a lack of confidence and, and you should have confidence because I wish I had two buy and hold quads um, uh, within a couple of blocks of the beach of San Diego. Like I would love to have that. So um, man, you're an investor. Like you, you just are. So consider yourself an investor. I, it'll help you. It'll aid you as you go forward because you don't need to have this insecurity or this like shyness about the, you know, what you've done. You know, most people will not ever have a couple of quads a couple of blocks away from the beach in San Diego. Most people will not have that, right? So, you are an investor. Consider yourself that, and and don't even give it a second thought. Okay, uh, next question is: I'm self managing a sixty unit apartment building, and for the most part, doing great. However, the maintenance is killing me. The erratic tenant maintenance questions coupled with trying to get them handed out to the right handyman, plumber, et cetera, are driving me insane. Does something like a property maintenance company exist? So I interviewed a guy um, named Mike uh, Bonadies. Mike Bonadies had had a, a situation like this and he created kind of this property management, property maintenance uh, arm of his business. And so you can do it. Uh, but the bottom line is you need, you really need to hire that part of your business out. It's driving you crazy. It's bogging you down. You can certainly create a property management, you know, arm, but even having someone that you bring in to your business or into onto your team that handles property maintenance issues. <clears throat> and then honestly, setting expectations with your tenants properly. Like, I don't know what your leases say, but I know at least in residential real estate, we write into our lease that anything under $100, the tenant is responsible for. Anything over $100, we're responsible for. And what that does is, you know, keeps you from people calling you about light bulbs that burned out or, you know, light switches that stopped working or just you know, minor little nuisance calls. And then they're only calling you for things that are kind of legit, right? Like, um, you know, something mechanical or something big. So that's one thing you can do is just, you know, maybe you can't do it with existing people, but as these leases come due is just put something in there where they're, they're responsible up to a certain dollar amount or at the very least they 
they handle and pay for anything up to a certain dollar amount. And then you'll reimburse them. If you know, if you don't feel comfortable making them pay for something, maybe you reimburse them, but uh, I, I, you can't get calls for every little dumb thing. And as the person who's like running the apartment building, I would have somebody in place who's taking those calls, even if it's just a service, like a VA who takes them in and then distributes them to the right person and make sure it's getting done. But uh, I would take that off your plate, but go check out my, my um, podcast episode and hopefully maybe behind the scenes, we can find out what number that was. But if you just go um, to my website, mikesimmons.com and go to the, uh, the, uh, go to the, um, podcast page, the podcast link and type in Mike Bonadies. It should pull up and you can, you could hear that episode, but he had a really good solution for it. So I would go check that out. <clears throat> okay. Gabriel, welcome back, man. All right. Gabriel has a question. My partner and I have some money saved up for our first flip. Uh, our hard money lender is requiring us to show a certain amount of cash before lending which is reasonable, but how do I ever scale up to multiple properties if my cash pool isn't the largest? Do I need to hop from lender to lender if this is a standard or is private money the way to go? <laughs> um, yeah, private money is the way to go. And, and I say that as someone who is currently has and I am building a hard money lending company. Um, but I would still say to, to people that, you should always be looking for private money and trying to build that up. I don't think all hard money lenders are going to require you to have like this chunk of money available. Most of them are going to want you to pay something toward the purchase price. So you're going to need that, obviously. Um, but I would say, you know, there's a lot of ways to tackle this problem. One of them is when you do your first flip, take some of those profits, put it aside into like a little bit of a gap funding or down payment. Um, account and start building that account up. So you, you always have that. There are lenders out there that will lend, um, you know, 90 or even a hundred percent of the, of the loan and renovation, but uh, private money lenders are absolutely going to be your best way to go. And that's the easiest way to scale because private money lenders, it, at least all of them that I've ever done, like private money deals that I've ever done. And what I advise people is, you need to set that expectation with your private money lender that they're going to lend the entire purchase price and the entire renovation price or you know whatever it is you're doing but they're going to lend all of it and you know people ask me like when you have private money like what are the terms what terms can you do you can do anything you want technically i mean anything that that person in you that private lender in you agree to is fair game like any like whatever you want right so what i did with my private money lenders was we, I negotiated that they were going to pay the, so, okay, I would, let's dial it back. I find a house. This was years ago when I started, it was 08, 09. Like we were finding things on the MLS, right? So I would find a property or my realtor would find a property on the MLS and I would put down the thousand dollars or $2,000, whatever it was for like the, the earnest money, right? That went to the title company. And then I would reach out to my private money lender and say, Hey, I just got this thing under contract this was the earnest money I put down. This is the cost to purchase. This is the cost to renovate. And then I would also add in like all the taxes and insurance and holding costs and everything. Like even the cost of what I was going to end up having to pay him, I would, I would put all that in there. And then I would get, I would get reimbursed for my earnest money at closing. They would fund the closing and they would also fund the earnest money and 
they would also fund my renovation right at the closing. So they would overfund the closing. So if the house was $100,000 and it was going to cost me $25,000 to renovate it, they would wire in all the money for the closing and that I would get a check at closing for $25,000 so that I could do the renovation. Technically, I would get a check for more than 25 because I would tell them I need the money for the closing, I need money for renovation, and here's all my holding and, and costs and costs of taxes and insurance and all that stuff. And I would get paid all that up front. So I didn't have to come out of pocket for anything, right? That is infinitely scalable. That's infinitely scalable, right? So private money is the way to go. Now, if you can find a hard money lender that will lend you 100% of your purchase, 100% of your renovation, that can be great too. Going back to the private lender, lender though, I didn't pay monthly payments to them either. I paid them when I sold the property. So not only did they fund everything up front, I had no payments until I sold. And then I paid them back their, their principal with, in, with interest if I was doing interest and some uh, private money lenders, I was doing some sort of a profit split. And so I'd give them all that, but it was all paid at the end. So I didn't have to come up with any of this money out of pocket. That is infinitely scalable. And that's the goal, right? If you can find a hard money lender that will lend 100% of everything, that's great. But most of them are going to require you to make at least interest only payments while you're doing the renovation. So that's something to consider. But Yes, private money is 100% the way to go. And, uh, and, and I can help you understand how that all goes too. Uh, if, you get, if you go to MikeSimmons.com, go and check me out and reach out and, and, and get involved in some things that I'm doing, uh, which is gonna be, I'm going to be announcing here pretty soon. Something is coming up in January. So I'm being a little bit evasive, but um, stay in touch with me because I'm going to have something available that's going to, that's going to help you with, with exactly that and more. So, but, but, but private money is absolutely the way to go, Gabriel. Okay. Uh, next question uh, is everyone tells me I should wait to invest because the market is too hot right now and there are no good deals. All of my friends think that I should do short-term rentals or apartment buildings. They're all giving me advice and I don't know which one of them to listen to. Any advice? <laughs> you're telling me you don't want to listen to their advice and ask me about my advice. That's good. I'm glad you're asking me because here's the first thing I would say. The people who are giving you all of this advice, are they successful real estate investors with businesses in the real estate industry that you would like to have or that you admire? If the answer is no or eh, then, then it doesn't matter what they think. They, they, who cares? In other words, you, you never want to take business advice from someone who is not successful in business, okay? Let me repeat that. Don't ever take business advice from someone who is not successful in business. Most of the people that we get advice from, including sometimes myself, when I go to family gatherings or I go and hang out with friends is people, everyone, everyone becomes a real estate uh, investing expert and they have all these opinions. And if I listen to them, I would be scattered. I'd be doing all kinds of crazy things or not doing all kinds of things. And it wouldn't be good for my business because, you know, just like maybe you wouldn't take advice uh, on how to get in shape from someone who's way out of shape, right? It's kind of the same thing. I don't take advice in business unless it's coming from someone who I admire in business and someone who I think that their business is amazing. And I really, really would like to have a similar business or some part of my business emulate what they're doing. Then I'll take their advice. And I, and I do have people like that in my life who I 
I really admire their business and their business brain. And I have a lot of people in my life who they've never run a business ever. They don't know what the first thing about real estate or running a business, but they're sometimes they're just as likely to tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing. And I don't listen to them. You know, I'm polite and I'm nice to them. And some of them, my friends and family. And so I'm obviously I'm, I'm not being rude or mean, but I'm certainly not going to change my business structure or my business practices based off of advice from someone who is not in my industry and doesn't have a business that I admire. Okay. So be careful about who you're taking advice from. But as far as should you invest in this market? Is it too hot right now? And there are no good deals. That is an absolute 100% false statement. It is a hot market, but there are deals and you should not wait because the market's hot. Because guess what? The market does this. This is the real estate market. More, more realistically or, or more accurately, it does this, right? It goes down and up, but it, it's on this, old, like on a, on a macro level, it kind of goes up all the time, but it goes, but on a micro level, it just goes up and down, right? Over the years, but it, but it always kind of goes up. So my point is the, the real estate market is always going to be fluctuating. It's always going to be moving in some direction. If you wait for the market to stabilize or to go down and stay down, you'll never do it. You'll, you'll, you'll be making excuses the rest of your life. And what I'm saying is, don't use the market as an excuse. Don't let the, the fears of people who've never taken the risk to do what you're talking about doing, the people who are afraid to take that risk, don't take their advice either. They don't know, they don't know what they're talking about. If I listened to people when I started, I never would have got started because everyone was telling me, stay away from real estate. The real estate market is terrible, right? When I started, it was the opposite of what we have now. Right now, we're in a seller's market. When I started, we were in a buyer's market. But what that means to the public is, and to people that don't know about real estate, is hot and cold, right? You don't want to invest in a hot market because there are no deals. You don't want to invest in a cold market because house prices have tanked and like real estate's going in the, in the toilet, right? So there's, there's reasons that people will give you not to invest either way. And then when it's going up, you don't want to invest because prices are raising and, and you just don't know where prices are going to be. And when they're going down, you can't invest because you can't invest because you don't know where prices are going to be, right? There's always these excuses that people have why they don't do something. Don't be that person. It's a hot market. Who gives a crap? Go out there and find a good deal because there are good deals. My company's finding them like crazy. Yeah, I've been around for a while and we have systems and processes and we have all these this marketing and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But they're still out there. They're out there for you to find. So go find them. Don't listen to your friends and family who say it's a bad market. They're wrong. They're just wrong. So um, you can just throw, you can flush that right down the toilet. It's 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 a fine market. The the market is neither good nor bad. By the way, it could be hot and cold. It could be a seller's market, a buyer's market. It's fine. That's how we identify it. The market has no more of a personality or a good or bad quality than the wind, right? It just is what it is. The market is what it is. It's not trying to hurt you. It's not trying to help you. It just exists. You have to, as an investor, figure out how to work in the market that you're in. And when the market starts shifting, you have to figure out how to react to those shifts so that you can stay relevant and continue to make money. And you can. Thinking that you can't, looking for reasons that you can't, or listening to people who say you can't, you know, if you think that you can't or you think that you can, you're right. You're just right. Both statements are correct. It's just what do you believe? What story? Like going back to the beginning, right? What story do you tell yourself? 
What do you, what do you think of your ability to do it? Go out there and do it. You can definitely do it. This is not a bad market. It's, it's a hot market, but it's a, it's a good market. Okay. Next question. Bob Sleeves. What's up, brother? How are you doing, man? All right. How do you feel? Let's see if Bob can throw me a curveball or something, some fastball here. That's going to be hard. How do you feel about selling wholesale deals on an auction website like Celio.co? A buddy of mine created the platform. Oh, you now you advertising your buddy's uh, software on my on my Q and A now, Bob? Is that what's happening? No, I'm just joking. Um, I've never used I've never used an auction website to sell my wholesale deals. But here's my answer to that question: Having never done it, I think it's great. I think you should try to do it. Like do it and see what happens. Um, people told me <clears throat> years ago that I couldn't sell wholesale deals on the MLS. And I thought it was a good idea and I wanted to do it. And I wanted to see if I could make it happen. And guess what? We sell wholesale deals on the MLS. You can do it. We have permission to do it, right? From, from the uh, Board of Realtors. So I think do this wholesale thing on the auction site, uh, do it. And then when I see you next, hopefully I'll see you January. I think I might be seeing you. Uh, tell me how it goes and, and I'll do it too. If it works, right. That's what, that's what the mastermind's all about. So Bob's in our seven figure flipping mastermind. Um, that's what we do, right? We go out there and try things, uh, that most people haven't tried or don't know about. We see how they work. We come back, tell everybody, and we all benefit from it. So I'm down, man. I, I try it. I, I can't, I can't speak to Celio or any other, uh, auction website to sell my wholesale deals, but yeah, I think it's great. Any place you can go to get those deals out there and, and get in front of a bunch of buyers, especially in an auction format, because what psychologically, auctions make people overpay. They just do, right? You want this baseball card. You want this Batman costume from 1989, Michael Keaton Batman. Like, it, What is it worth? This, this pile of clothes, right? I don't know. Maybe it's worth a couple hundred bucks. Maybe it's worth a couple thousand. Maybe it's worth 50,000, but people will pay a million. Why? Because other people are bidding and they don't want to lose, right? I've overpaid for things in auction sites uh, like eBay. I just I wanted it. So I, I did it. I watched someone overpay. I went to a Tony Robbins event uh, a couple of weeks ago and he had uh, an auction situation, like an online auction that you could participate in for stuff that he was selling or, or basically auctioning off. And I watch people overpay for that stuff like crazy, right? It's just auctions people overpay. I love it, man. I think you should do it. Try it out and see what happens. Okay. Uh, next question. My business is growing, but I'm overwhelmed with work and I need, I'm sorry, I'm overwhelmed with work and I know I need some help. I'm a bit of a control freak though. How do I get help? Uh, give them work that will, and give them work that will really help me, but not micromanage them. So, control freaks always struggle with this. Um, I can be a control freak at times. I had to learn to get over that a little bit. Um, so, what you have to realize is number one, you are not great at everything. There are things that you're going to be doing in your business, certainly as it's growing, that you are not helping the company as much as other people could help the company in that role. In other words, if you're starting a real estate investing company or that's what you're talking about and you're growing, there are things that have to get done that you're doing them because you own the company and there's nobody else to do them right now, but you're you're not helping the company or you might even be hurting the company 
because you're not really great at it. You're doing it because you have to. And, and so you're getting overwhelmed because of the workload. But I assume because I went through the exact same growing pains, you're also getting overwhelmed because some of the work isn't you're not really the best fit for it. And so you're conforming a little bit and you're straining and struggling to bend yourself into this role that you don't like. And so what I tell people as your company is growing, look at the tasks that you're doing in the business. Look at all of the roles that you're filling and be honest with yourself about the ones that you don't like or that you procrastinate. And I'll I'll give you a, for example, when my business started growing, I was doing direct mail. And so direct mail would cause the phone to ring. I would get calls in from sellers who received my postcards. I didn't like having those conversations on the phone with sellers. It's not really my strength and I didn't really enjoy doing it. And so I would let it go to voicemail. And then I might call back like the next day or, or a couple of days later. And then I wouldn't always get a hold of them. Sometimes I would, but I kept letting it go to voicemail and I didn't mail out more, a lot more postcards as I started growing because I knew if I mailed, mailed more postcards, I was going to get more calls and I was going to start avoiding those calls. And I was creating my own bottleneck in my business. So when I hired somebody to do sales for me to go out on the appointments and talk to the sellers and get the house under contract. I also started having that person answer my calls. And so once I wasn't answering calls, I realized I've got marketing money that I can spend. And so I started spending more money on cards, which created more phone calls, but I didn't care because I wasn't answering them anymore. And so always hire people, hire out the thing that you don't love in your business, or you feel like you actually Maybe you hate the parts of your business, but you have to do it, right? It will help you not be a control freak as much because I know that I can be a control freak and I have a tendency to micromanage sometimes. Not anymore. I used to. I really have gotten past that. But in the beginning, I was micromanaging. But you micromanage less on the things that you are relieved to get rid of or to delegate to somebody else. The things that we micromanage on usually as micromanagers are when we hire someone in our company to do the thing that we feel like we're great at. And so I always tended to micromanage the dispositions process in my company or the dispositions um, role because I felt like I was so good at it that when we finally hired that out, I was like, no one's ever going to do it as good as I do it. So I was always micromanaging. But the phones, I didn't micromanage that because I hated it. And the person I hired was better than me day one. Like day one, he was answering calls and getting more appointments and more contracts than I was. So why would I micromanage that person? I knew he was better than me and I didn't like doing it anyway. So it was easy not to micromanage. So you have to get over yourself. You're not great at everything. Chances are you're only good at one or two things really in your company and the rest of them, you're just you're okay. You're competent and you do it because you have to, because you own the company. Get rid of those things first. Delegate, hire out, download the things that you really don't love because they're probably causing bottlenecks too in your company because you don't love them and you're not great at them. And hang on to the things that you're great at and make those the last things that you that you hire out. But yeah, you just have to, the control freak thing, you know, don't because nobody is great at everything. And so let go of the things you're not good at and don't be a control freak. Hire good people who are who are better than you and let them be better than you. Let them be great at what they do. Um, 
Nick. I think I got this. I think Nick. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Nick. Uh, Hey Nick, how you doing, man? Um, do I do any texting marketing? Um, I have, I'm, we're not doing it right now actively to be perfectly transparent and honest. We're not, we're not doing texting right now, but we did do it for, we did it for about six, eight months back in 2020. And it was okay. I think we got a couple of deals. It wasn't fantastic. It was more work for us than, than what it bore fruit. Like it, the, the result, you know, or, or the benefit was, was not outweighed by the work it took to get that, those leads and those deals. So we stopped doing it because it really wasn't super effective for us. But I think everyone should try it at least in their business and give it a good run of six to eight months or a year because it's so cheap and so insanely cheap to do that I think it's a good marketing strategy to use, especially if you're working on a somewhat limited budget. Um, I always think it's a real smart thing when you're doing marketing for your business, pick if you have, if you have the ability, pick a paid marketing strategy, like direct mail, for example, is usually a really, really good one. And then if you don't have a lot of money left over, ringless voicemail, texting, driving for dollars, bird dogs, you know, driving for dollars for you. Like those are all great secondary marketing channels because they're either, or bandit signs, they're super cheap or free. And so the, you, but, but you almost have to try them because they're so cheap. It's, it's worth trying while you're also doing like PPC or uh, direct mail or some, or cold calling or something like that. Right. Like a main, I look at those as like major marketing channels and I look at text messaging and ringless voicemail and bandit signs. It's kind of secondary. Now there are people that I know personally that I talk to shake hands with, I know their names who have used text messaging or ringless voicemail or bandit signs as their primary lead driver. So I'm not, I'm not diminishing them and saying they're not really ever that great for some people in some markets and some, um, you know, businesses, it works really, really great. It never, those have always been secondary for me. What's always been primary for me is like cold calling, direct mail, PPC. Those what those are what I do primarily to drive leads into my company, and then text blasting, ringless voicemail, bandit signs, those kind of things have always just sort of been a trickle. I get a deal here and there, and it kind of always pays for itself, or maybe a little bit more. But it's for us, text messaging just sort of we ran out of steam a little bit with it, and it was taking up more time in our company than it was really worth, so we stopped doing it. But I think you should be doing it. You should for sure try it. And if you just, if you, same as me, if you realize that the the squeeze isn't worth the juice, stop squeezing and move on to something else. You know, don't beat yourself, your head against the wall, but you should try things. Give them a good, give them a good try. Give them a good run, six, eight months, a year. And if it's just not working, then just read the tea leaves, right? Look at your instrument panel. As I always say, like your, your business and your KPIs are like the instrument panel on a plane, like read the instrument panel and believe it what it's telling you is, is true. So just believe it. And if that marketing channel is not working, turn it off and take that time, money, and energy and put it into something that is producing for you. So hopefully that helps. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm looking now here. I, let's see. Nick said, uh, DM is my primary. Good. <clears throat> Texting is secondary. Yep. I, I agree. I think it's exactly how you should do it. Okay. Uh, Bob says, how do you give sellers the opportunity to opt out of receiving mail? We've been getting a lot of owner occupied sellers reaching out and, and being, and not being too polite. 
<clears throat> yeah, we get this all the time uh, too. When we were doing a lot, a lot, a lot of direct mail, we got it also. I'll tell you what, you can uh, have your phone person take the information down, type it into a spreadsheet once a month, scrub your spreadsheet and delete those out uh, of all your lists. That's, that's what you can do. And that's what we ended up doing in the in last few years. But I, there is an argument to be made that you don't do it because there's a certain amount of, I'll tell you what, to be more, to be more fair, what we're really good about is if someone calls and they're just like freaking out and threatening to sue and being like over the top, we'll usually go in and, and take those people out, right? The squeaky wheel gets oiled. We don't make a lot of effort to take people out if they just say, hey, I'm not interested in selling, take me off your list. You know, we just don't because there's a certain amount of manpower, time, and money associated with getting those lists scrubbed, especially if you're buying new lists and you have to constantly scrub them. That somebody who I admire in business and is a good ethical business person said they just they just don't. They just don't take them off the list. They just leave them. It's it's less of a headache to take those calls once in a while than it is to actually go in and physically remove these names from a list. So we didn't remove people at all, no matter what they said for a long time. And especially if you're like constantly pulling new lists, it can be quite a quite a job for somebody to maintain and stay on top of all that, unless you have them in some software that automatically like searches and deletes or something. And there are companies out there that will do that for you. It's totally fine. But the advice that I got early on was just, just leave them. It's, it's not worth the time and the money and the effort to do it, to get them out of there. And if you say, Hey, listen, if I take them out, I'm not sending the postcards so that saves me money. If, you know, 33 cents a card or whatever you're paying, like it just, it's not really worth the hassle in your company. And honestly, if you called, you know, Domino's and said, stop sending me these postcards about pizza coupons and stuff, I don't want them. You're going to keep getting it. You're, you're never going to stop them from sending them to you. You're just not. And it's junk mail. And who else like goes through their database and remove, like, I don't know. I don't think people do that. So I get junk mail, I throw it away. So some people call in and get mad if they really freak out and it's like they're losing their mind and we're just like ruining their life. We'll go in and take them out. But, you know, in general, we don't we don't do it a lot. We just do it sometimes when it feels like they're over the top. So I don't really worry about it, man, to be honest with you. But, you know, if you're sending out 100,000 postcards and you feel like you're getting, you know, hundreds a week telling you they want to be taken off your list, maybe it becomes a cost savings enough to do it. But like I said, who do you, does Domino's take you off their list? Does Chase take you off their list of sending you credit card notices of cards they want to pre-approve you for? Like I get junk mail all the time. It's, I'm, I know I'm not going to get off their list. And frankly, we buy new lists all the time. And so that becomes a little bit cumbersome. So that's kind of like a, you know, do what you feel like you need to do kind of thing. But for years, I didn't take anybody off my list. We just kept mailing them out and it was junk mail. And, and when people called mad, we'd say, totally understand we buy these lists all the time. We don't have total control about getting you out of new, you know, we can take you off the list, but if we buy a new list, you could be on it. So just throw it away. Like just throw it away. You know, don't worry about it. We won't, you know, we're not trying to bother you specifically. That's the problem. A lot of people think that you're, you're mailing to them and you're like, you're, you're targeting them and we're not obviously right. We're sending out to thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. So I would just say, Hey, we buy new lists all the time uh, from different sources and just, 
throw it away. It's, if it doesn't apply to you, it's junk mail. Throw it away with all the other junk mail that you get, and and uh, we apologize. So, anyways, that's it, man. I people go, yeah, it is funny how people react. People really lose it. They think that you're really targeting them, <clears throat> and we're not. You know, it's like when people call and say, "Well, what do you give me for my house?" And I go, "Well, what what is the address?" And they'll go, "Well, you tell me. You sent me a card." It's like. I sent out 50,000 cards this month. I don't know who you are. I, I don't, I'm not, we're not targeting you. We have that conversation with people. Like we send out 50,000 mail pieces. You know, we don't need more, but when we did, we sent out 50,000 mail pieces. We don't know who you are. We're not targeting you. We're sending this out based off of data that we pulled. And that's the same thing we tell people when they want to be taken off the list. Like, listen, we, we pull lists that are up to a hundred thousand people. We're not targeting you. And if we pull this list, we can take you off this one. But when we pull a new one, you may be on it. Like I, we can't always stop that. So anyway, so super long answer to an easy question. Don't worry about it kind of a thing. All right, guys, I'm going to pull the plug. I appreciate you guys being here, Bob, Nick. Gabriel, thanks for uh, hopping on here and asking questions. If you have questions, anybody listening to this, either live or if you're listening to the replay, if you have questions, you can send them to me at mike at juststartrealestate.com. Uh, in the subject line, just put Q&A question, and then we'll be able to find it easily and get it in here for you and answer the questions. Uh, but until next time, guys, get out there and do it. All these questions that we have, they don't have them if they don't get out there and start making offers and, and driving leads and buying houses. So get out there and start that process. Come back, ask me your questions and I'll help you through it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.